The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I probably studied the Nephilim and the Sons of God, this mysterious passage of Scripture, probably more than I would care to admit, <laughs> mainly because I've always had pretty strong arguments, but there were a couple I just couldn't quite nail down all the way, and that always irked me. But I think I've come up with a pretty solid argument. I think it's very difficult to combat. And I would like to mention... One of the views of the sons of God is that they are angels. They are angelic beings. That is not my position. I hold they are men. They are men who God saved prior to the flood, and they went after ungodly wives, and we'll be discussing that. There are many uh, very good theologians, very conservative, good preachers who hold to the position that they are angels. So I wouldn't call you a heretic for (laughs) thinking that these are angels, but we'll go over why I think that's a little silly. Genesis chapter 6. I will be replacing the word giants with Nephilim. I think it makes it a little more clear. Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. That's the time of him making this declaration to the time of the flood. There were giants, there were Nephilim in the earth in those days, and also after that. When the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, and the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The controversy arises from verse 2 and verse 4. Verse 4 says, There were giants in the earth in those days. The word giants there is the Hebrew word nephilim. There were Nephilim in the earth in those days, and also after that. When the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare bare children to them, and the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. As I discussed, there are quite a few different ways people interpret this passage. The two most prominent ones are the sons of God are angelic beings. They took to wife, not necessarily married, but took to wife human women, and they had kind of this half-angelic, half-human off-breed that was essentially just super-powered mankind, super-powered men with great strength. Uh, the other prominent one is the Sethite view, that these men were all Sethites. They married the daughters of Cain. I take a little bit more of a modified view of that. I wouldn't say they're necessarily all Sethites, though probably most of them were. I would just say they're godly men in general, and that they married ungodly women in general. Uh, but before diving into that, I wanted to just kind of get out of the way a little bit. What does mighty men of old and men of renown mean? 
Renown isn't necessarily someone who is famous or praised or exalted in any, uh, in any way. It can mean that, but it just means people who are well-known or esteemed, either in a good way or in a bad way. Some of the enemies of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 23 are referred to as men of renown. Also, the word here, mighty, the mighty men of old, as many commentators have explained, this should rightly be understood, mighty in their rebellion. Uh, it is the very same words used to describe Nimrod just a few chapters later. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, it says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, talking about someone who is rebellious against God, establishing his own kingdom. And these mighty men that were of old, most likely this is where we get a lot of the mythology of the nations. These stories of these mighty men, these rebellious men, um, all the men that started building up civilization prior to the flood, we get Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain in Genesis chapter 4. They started inventing uh, ironsmithing and brasssmithing. They started inventing uh, agricultural businesses. They started developing music and arts. And civilization started to begin to grow. And probably some of these men, uh, after the Tower of Babel happened and the people dispersed, they took those stories and started kind of incorporating them into their false religions. Uh, a good example of this is Tubal-Cain. Tubal-Cain was an artificer, and he taught people, an artificer in brass and iron, and he taught people how to smith and smelt. And interestingly enough, if you take the word Tubal-Cain and drop the two, it becomes Bulcain. Or in the Latin, it would be pronounced Vulcan, the Roman god of smithing. That's just one example. <clears throat> now, moving on to this mysterious word, the Nephilim. <laughs> People say it with an ominous tone a lot, of, a lot of times. What exactly is a Nephilim? What does the word mean? Uh, your King James translates it as giants. Some of the modern translations just kind of transliterate it. They take up the Hebrew word and just plop it down in English and say, you deal with it, <laughs> whatever it means. The word Nephilim is related to the Hebrew word nafal, uh, which means to fall, or to, uh, it can even mean to fall upon. Nafal as a noun would be nephil, as in nephilim. And if you've ever read the word... Uh, or seen in a commentary, maybe you looked up this question yourself, you would notice the word Nephilim ends with an I-M, im. Uh, and in Hebrew, when words typically end with an I-M, it means it's plural. So literally, Nephilim means fallen ones, or it could also be understood as those who fall upon others, kind of like a mugging or a bandit. It's just kind of pouncing on you. Either one works. So why does the King James translate it as giants? Well, we need to remember that the translation process of the King James is not directly inspired by God. It is not above questioning. It, um, it is not the, the translation itself is not inspired by God. But I do still hold it is obviously the best translation we have. It's, I can't find any translation that really competes with it. This is one verse where I would kind of question the translators. The decision to translate the word Nephilim as giants probably comes from three influences. Uh, one would be the Greek Septuagint, which translates the ancient Greek. Uh, the Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, 
Okay, so around the second century BC before Christ, uh, some most likely what happened is Jews down in Egypt they took the Hebrew Old Testament and they translated it into Greek for Greek-speaking Jews. And when they translated it, they translated it as gigantes, or as we would say, gigantes. So they take Nephilim and they translate it as gigantes. The Latin Vulgate likewise rendered the word Nephilim as gigantes or gigantes. Kind of just assuming the tradition and taking on following suit after the Septuagint. So when the King James translators were looking to were looking into how this word Nephilim should be rendered, they probably consulted some older translations like the Septuagint and like the Vulgate. And we can also look, they probably were also influenced by Numbers chapter 13. You can turn there if you want. Numbers chapter 13. Uh, Numbers chapter 13 is the only other reference where the word Nephilim in the Bible occurs. It's not used anywhere else other than in Genesis 6 and here in Numbers 13. So the context of what's going on is that um, spies are sent out into the land of Canaan. They're told to spy out the land, give, bring back a report. What's it like? What are we looking at here? And the spies come back with an evil report, meaning it, they're lying. They were afraid of the enemies, and so they tried to discourage people from wanting to go into the land to conquer it. And so they lied about some of the things that were going on in the land. Number 13, verse 31. But the men that went up with him said, be not able to, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report, that is a lying report, an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone to search it, it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. It's a bad land, it's not fertile, it doesn't produce food. It's, it eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants. Again, same word. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, which came of the giants, which came of the Nephilim. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. The existence of the Nephilim, the very idea that the Nephilim could continue to exist after the flood, is kind of already a, a big blow to the angelic view, because it means not only did angels... Um, interbreed with women prior to the flood, but they continued to do so after the flood. And we don't really get much mention of angels doing it again. So what the angelic, uh, the, those who advocate for the angelic position, what they typically do is try to dismiss this. They'll say, well, it's an evil report, it's a bad report, nothing they're saying is true. But just because some of the things they're saying aren't true doesn't necessarily mean everything they're saying isn't true. As with most lies, some, there is some hint of truth to it. And we can kind of get a look at this in Numbers chapter 14, if you want to turn there. In Numbers chapter 14, starting verse 6, uh, Joshua and Caleb, they spy out, they get their own report, and they correct the report of the first spies. Numbers 14, verse 6. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, I think that's how you say it, <laughs> which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is exceedingly good land. 
It does not devour its inhabitants. It's exceedingly good land. If the Lord delight in us, then we will bring us in, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear the people of the land, for they are bread, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. So let's compare these two things. What things did they correct about the false spies report, or the report, the false report from the previous spies, or the other spies? The bad report indicates the land devours its inhabitants. That was challenged. They said, no, it's an exceedingly good land flowing with milk and honey. All the men were of great size. The spies seemed very small in their sight, like grasshopper. Somewhat challenged. Uh, Joshua and Caleb did not really comment on their size or stature, but they did say, uh, but they didn't comment on the size, but many have been giants in the past. Right? Goliath, for example, he was a man of very tall stature. And it's plausible to say that there may have been some other people like that. So just because they say they're of tall stature doesn't mean they're lying. They very much could be of bigger size, maybe genetically just they grow taller. They said Anakites were in the the land. That was not challenged. They didn't challenge that. They said Nephilim were there. Joshua didn't challenge that. Anakites were descendants of the Nephilim. Joshua didn't challenge that. Anakites were only part of the Nephilim. Joshua did not challenge that. We see Joshua and uh, Colin do not change the spot, do not challenge the spies that there were Anakites in the land, that there were Nephilim in the land, that the sons of Anak were Nephilim, and that the sons of Anak were not the only Nephilim. This also makes better sense of Genesis chapter 6, where Moses writes, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. And also after that. There were Nephilim in the earth during the days of Noah, and there were Nephilim after Noah. And some people who support the angelic view say, well, and also after that is just talking about the marriages. Uh, there were Nephilim produced from these angelic marriages, and also after that, during the, during the times of Noah. It's kind of a stupid argument. Uh, it's pretty redundant. Duh. I mean, it would be like if my parents say, Kyle existed uh, when he, when my mom got pregnant, and also after that. Yeah, (laughs) that's how living works. The Nephilim are the fallen ones, and these fallen ones existed at the time of Noah, and also after that, and I think number 13 confirms that. But were they giant? Were they gigantic people? This is where I think the King James transfers were influenced. They saw that the Nephilim in this passage is associated with people of tall stature. Uh, they looked at the Greek and Latin translations and saw they translated it as gigantes or gigantes. And so they translated the word Nephilim into English as giants. That seems to be the tradition. Nephilim are associated in number 13 with people of tall stature. But number 13 does not say the Nephilim were giants. It says the sons of Anak were people of tall stature. Let me put it this way. The sons of Anak were tall and Nephilim, but were they Nephilim because they were tall? Or were they tall and also they were Nephilim? I would say the latter. The sons of Anak were tall, and as a separate point, they were also Nephilim. 
This culminates in the spies perceiving themselves like grasshoppers. These people are bigger than us, and they're not gentle giants. They're not dimwit giants. These are vicious, violent people. They are Nephilim. So you have tall people, they're violent, and we feel like they're going to squash us like a bug if we go into the land. Both characteristics lead the spies to feel like the Anakites are going to violently squash them like a bug. So Numbers 13 does not necessarily indicate the idea that Nephilim were giants, although at this point I would grant it's a possibility, but I wouldn't say it's necessary. But what about the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Why did the Septuagint writers translate Nephilim as gigantes, gigantes? The Septuagint is a very useful tool, and we need to understand that. It is a useful tool to help us better understand the biblical languages. And the reason why is because if we have a question of what would be the Greek equivalent of this Hebrew word, you're looking at a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, and you want to kind of compare it to something in the New Testament. Well, the Old Testament is Greek. The, New Test- or the Old Testament is Hebrew, and the New Testament is Greek. So if you want to compare the two languages, well, ancient people at that time translated Hebrew into Greek. And you can kind of look at that and get an idea of what are the Greek equivalent of certain Hebrew words. That is a useful tool, but we need to keep in mind the Septuagint, one, is not inspired by God. It's just a translation like any other. And two, the Septuagint translators are... <laughs> They have some very clear biases and very obvious philosophical presuppositions that come through in their translations. Uh, The Septuagint is somewhat infamous infamous for this. Uh, A good example is the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5 in the Septuagint. Uh, The Egyptians and the pharaohs, uh, this is where the Septuagint was most likely um, translated, was down in Egypt. The Egyptians and the pharaohs already had a mythology and they already had a timeline about their kingdom and roughly when were the first pharaohs alive and things like that. The Hebrew scriptures contradicted the Egyptian mythology and timeline. So what did the Septuagint translators do as to not to get themselves in trouble by falsifying the Egyptians' mythology and timelines? They added extra years to the lifespans of the people in Genesis 5. They added extra, an extra years to the lifespans of these people to try and make room and make it better line up with the Egyptian chronology. And the result of this is that Methuselah died after the flood. Somehow Methuselah in the Greek Septuagint survived the flood. He continued to live, and then he died later on. Uh, this is a clear contradiction. We can also see a clear bias of the Septuagint's translators in the rendering of Genesis chapter 6 as well. The Septuagint manuscript Codex Alexandrius, uh, referring to Alexandria, Egypt, Codex Alexandrius, the translation there in Greek says in Genesis 6-2, it renders the phrase Bana Elohim, which means sons of God. Bana is sons, Elohim is God. But they render it as Engeloi to Theon, angels of God. But that's not what it says. It says, Bana Elohim, sons of God, but they twist it and they make it say, they force it to say, angels of God. So they clearly already have an understanding, they already have a presupposition that these sons of God are angels. 
So why did they change the scriptures um, from sons of God, which is what the Hebrew says, it does not say angels, and they made it say angels of God for two reasons. Uh, one, because with a handful of, as with a handful of mythologies, the Greeks and the Egyptians believed there were instances of gods uh, taking women to wife and having children with them. So just as they did with Genesis 5, they accommodated the Egyptians and also their own Greek understanding of things. Secondly, with a growing understand, uh, there was a growing understanding of this passage in Genesis among the Jews at that time, that were, and they were interpreting Genesis chapter 6 as being angels. The sons of gods are angels. They had half-angelic, half-human offspring. Uh, we can see this pretty clearly from the apocryphal writing, the Book of Enoch. Uh, it was written around the 2nd century B.C., right around the same time as the Septuagint. Now, I'm going to read from the book of Enoch here, but remember, this is not inspired scripture. Uh, also, there are obvious falsehoods all throughout this book. Uh, one example would be the fact that the book of Enoch mentions Mount Sinai. But Enoch, the Mount Sinai didn't exist at the time of Enoch. Uh, this is because the earth would have, during the flood, the earth would have re-terraformed. It would have completely restructured the surface of the earth. New mountains would be risen up. New valleys would be formed. And yet it mentions Mount Sinai as existing, which is impossible. So Enoch is uninspired. It's by a Jew who's kind of using the pseudonym. But what, the reason why I want to read it is because it gives us an idea. What are the Jews thinking at this time? Uh, where does this fable of angelic, that these sons of gods are angelic, come from? Enoch chapter 6 reads... And you'll see some other blatant falsehoods in here. Genesis chapter 6, or Enoch chapter 6. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and commonly daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And Semjaza, the supposed angelic leader of these people, uh, these angels, said unto them, I fear ye will indeed agree to do this deed, and then I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. So in other words, he's think, according to this kind of made-up fable, this angel's thinking, okay, you're going to lure me into this, and then you guys are just going to take a hike and abandon me. <laughs> you're going to leave me with all the consequences. And so he goes on, and it talks about how these angels made a pact with each other. They descended down in the days of Jared, and they got themselves wise and had many children. And goes on listing a bunch of different crazy angel names. <laughs> uh, Enoch chapter seven says, and all the other, and all the others, the angels, together with them, took unto themselves wives. Each chose for himself one, and they began, uh, and they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them uh, acquainted with plants and witchcraft stuff. And they became pregnant, the women, and <laughs> clarified that nowadays. <laughs> they became pregnant and bare great giants whose height was 3,000 L's. Here is a tough question. How many of you know what an, how long an L is? E-L-L. No, I didn't think so. It's about 1.25 yards. 3,000 L's tall. That's about 11,250 feet. Yeah, I'm telling you, <laughs> there were giants in the earth in those days, and they were 11,000 feet tall, I'm telling you. You've got to believe me. 
They were 3,000 ells tall, who consumed all the acquisitions of man, and when man could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind, and they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh and drink blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And the story of this book goes on to say that Enoch was caught up to heaven. God transformed him into an angel himself. So Enoch became an angel and stood in judgment over these angels who had fallen. There's pretty obvious things as to why we don't include this in scripture and why it's not inspired. Uh, what the pseudonymic writer of the book of Enoch is expressing, though, is a common view that was being popular, uh, popularized at that time, that the sons of God in Genesis were angels. So it is true many Jew, ancient Jews did hold to this. It's also true probably many, many rabbis taught it as well. But it's still also true that a handful of rabbis disagreed with that and rejected that. Just because ancient Jews had an interpretation of an Old Testament passage does not make itself true. If you have ever sat down and read any of the apocryphal books, you can very, see, very obviously see this truth. Um, you can kind of get an idea of how they viewed the Old Testament scriptures. There's stories of um, Daniel and the dragon. It's one of those apocryphal books, and it talks about how when Daniel was in the lion's den, God took Habakkuk out of the land of Israel, teleported him to Daniel in the lion's den to feed him, and then teleported him back. It's not, <laughs> that's false. Uh, it's not in the scriptures. The, facts, uh, the fact that the Jews had so many fables in the, about the Old Testament, its characters, is also part of the reason why Paul exhorts Christian pastors not to give heed to Jewish fables. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, Paul is telling what pastors should do. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, the people of Crete, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and slow bellies. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn, the, that turn from the truth of God. Not only are we not to accept just all these made-up traditions and extra rules the Pharisees made, these commandments of men, we're also not to give heed to Jewish fables and superstitions. Uh, going back to the Jewish Septuagint writers, uh, who also wrote in the second century, around the time the book of Enoch was written, we need to ask the question, why did they translate Nephilim as gigantes, gigantes? There's two possible reasons, and I would probably say um, it's both. One reason, the Septuagint translators clearly had a bias that the sons of God were angels. They already presupposed that. They were going to translate it that way no matter what. So, in the Greek Septuagint translators, their idea is these heavenly beasts came down and uh, breeded with women and produced a half-heavenly, half-earthly being. They were a violent people, according to Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 describes these Nephilim as exceedingly violent to the point that God destroyed the earth. So what creature in Greek mythology is similar, not exactly the same, but similar in its origin story? The giants. In Greek mythology, the giants are the result of the blood of Uranus, the sky god, which had fallen down to earth after one of his titan sons had castrated him. 
This blood was then taken by the, by the earth uh, in Gaia, the earth goddess. Uh, the earth then produced the giants from this heavenly blood. These giants, according to the Greeks, are said to be exceedingly violent and have great strength, but not necessarily of great stature. That's probably why they chose the word gigantes or gigantes, because they're trying to communicate the idea based on their own preconceived ideas that heavenly beings uh, took to wife earthly women, and then the result was this superhuman race of human beings. How do you express that? What Greek word do you choose to express that idea to the Greeks and to the Egyptians? They picked the word gigantes as a reference to the giants. Now, granted, the word gigantes does communicate the behavior of the Nephilim. The giants in mythology were considered a very violent, exceedingly violent, and mighty in their rebellion. And so were the Nephilim. So I guess that part is technically right. They were giants in that sense. So a Nephilim is a fallen one. It means someone who is extremely rebellious and violent. Not just your normal violence, not just your San Francisco and Chicago violence, Although that's getting pretty, the difference is getting pretty thin. <laughs> Not just your typical violence. They are exceedingly violent, exceedingly rebellious. So, who are the sons of God? We've discussed Nephilim means fallen ones. It could also be rendered those who fall upon. We know exist, uh, Nephilim existed before and also after the flood, as Genesis says and as Numbers implies. Uh, we know that why the Septuagint writers translate, translated the word Nephilim as gigantes, because they already had preconceived notions. The Latin Vulgate followed Zeus, and it's kind of understandable why the KJV translators render it as giants. They see the old translations, they see numbers, and probably came up with the idea of giants. Now, what about our understanding of the sons of God, or in the Hebrew, the Bana Elohim, the sons of God? Once we get that, we'll probably have a good answer and a key to understanding what, what is Moses trying to describe to us about what's going on. As I mentioned before, many have taken the term sons of God to refer to angels. But is Bana Elohim, the sons of God, always referring to angels in the Old Testament? On a technicality, yes, Probably. The most obvious example is the book of Job. If you want to turn to the book of Job real quickly. Chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 4. Verse 4, And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God, same Hebrew as Genesis 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down upon it. 
And there's a fringe interpretation of this. Uh, some try, in, in trying to avoid acknowledging that the sons of God can, can re, that term can refer to angels sometimes, in an effort to discredit that, that it could ever refer to angels, they take the interpretation that sons of God here is actually Job's sons. Job's sons presented themselves before God, and Satan also came with them. There's obvious reasons why this is wrong. <laughs> uh, because in Genesis chapter 1, all of his sons die. Uh, they all get killed. But in Genesis chapter, uh, Job chapter 2, verse 1, the sons of God appear again after Job's sons die. And again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came all, also among them to present himself before the Lord. There's also a very undeniable reference to angels uh, in the book of Job. Job 38, verse 7 reads, uh, uh, 4 through 7, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of these? So God is talking to Job. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who has laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it, whereupon the foundations thereof fasted, fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The word sons of God cannot mean men there, because men have not been created yet. So this is definitely angels. But can God refer to men as sons of God? Yes, obviously. Uh, it can refer to angels, but it can also refer to men. And this is where I said before, they, those who advocate the angelic view of Genesis 6, they make their arguments primarily on a technicality. <laughs> They're going to look in the Old Testament and say, okay, where does the specific phrase, Banai Elohim, the sons of God, appear? And that's all they look for. Hosea, uh, 1, chapter, uh, Hosea 1, verse 10 reads, In the place where it is said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. And they'll say, well, that doesn't say Bena Elohim. Okay, do you want a gold star for figuring that one out? <laughs> no, it doesn't say exactly Ben Elohim. It says sons of the living God, not sons of God. But it's still the same point. These are sons of Yahweh. It's just... Same God in, in view. Uh, Psalm 73, verse 15 reads, If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Whose children? God's children. God's sons and daughters. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5 says, They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. And some translations render children as sons. Psalm 82, verse 6 says, I have said, ye are gods, all ye are children of the Most High. And he's talking about the Jewish judges, the judges. And again, the, the angelic advocate would say, well, it doesn't say specifically sons of God. Okay, <laughs> it would be like if God said to human beings, you are my sons. And then they came back and said, well, God said you are my sons, quote-unquote. He didn't say, you are sons of God, so you're not sons of God. This is the way a nine-year-old argues. <laughs> this is not a good argument. The point is the same. You are my sons, you are sons of God. It would also be like if I went to Psalm 29, which is a psalm about the angels telling the angels to give praise to the Lord. Uh, it reads, Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, ye bene, ye bene elim, 
the sons of the mighty, literally. Give unto the Lord, ye sons of the mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. And I said, well, if I were to try and argue, well, this doesn't mean angels, it means men, because obviously only angels can only be rendered as Bena Elohim, no other way. There can only be one way to say angels and no other way. No, that's not a good argument. You can render angels sons of God in many different ways. You can say the same thing for men. Men can be called sons of gods in various different ways. And of course, the New Testament, which is often left out of this discussion, the New Testament consistently refers to Christians as sons of God and children of God, sons and daughters of God. I won't point out all the verses because we don't have time, but one of them, uh, Romans 8.14 says, For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, is that only true in the New Testament, or is that also true in the Old Testament? It's still true in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. Anyone who is led by the Spirit of God, has been given new nature by God, may rightfully be called a son of God, sons of God. So, were the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 men or angels? All we've done so far is established sons of God can refer to men. It could also refer to angels. So which is it? I think there's a few key things that tell us this. Jesus says angels can't marry, Matthew 22, verse, 9, verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. And the objection is, well, it says angels in heaven don't marry. It doesn't say they can't. Okay, I guess, sort of. <laughs> but what's the point of marriage? The two become one and produce children. That's why marriage is made. So if angels don't marry, there's no reason to assume God would make them with the ability to marry and have children. If the sons of God in Genesis 6 are angelic beings then they're not angels. They are demons. They are fallen angels. This is important because nowhere in Scripture is a demon referred to as a son of God. They are not sons of God. They are of their father, the devil. Nowhere do we see demons materialize, especially not as men. We don't see demons materialize. We see some angels materialize. Uh, when the angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah to get Lot, they materialized and they became a sort of physical form that looked like men. But we don't see that with demons. In fact, I would say it's suggested they're not able to do that. Uh, Luke eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus talks about a, an evil spirit that has been cast out of a man. And he says in Luke eleven twenty four, when the unclean spirit is gone out of man, of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in, and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Why do demons want to possess a human being if they can just materialize their own human body? Why is it why do they do that? If the intention is to inflict pain on people, then why don't they just materialize their own body and inflict pain on you? They don't do that. 
Uh, maybe it's because they want to enjoy all the gluttony and drunkenness of, that the human body can do, that they can't. Maybe it's a combination of both. They want uh, the luxuries and sensa- sensation of being a human and also being able to torment you. I don't know. There's no clear answer on that. And fourthly, and I think this is probably the best point, I think Jesus gives us a definitive answer whether demons can materialize in, into some human form or not. Uh, if you'll turn to Luke 24, Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 37. Luke 24, verse 37, and we're going to read to verse 43. <clears throat> so what's going on here is Jesus has been killed, he's been resurrected, and now he's appearing to his disciples, and they don't believe it's him for a moment. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit, and I want to pause already, <laughs> the word spirit. Do you think they saw a holy angel mimicking Jesus? No, the angels don't deceive, not the holy ones. They think they are seeing a deceiving spirit, an evil spirit. And suppose that they had seen a spirit of a certain kind, a deceiving one. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. But don't some angels materialize with kind of human bodies? Maybe they're not the same kind as ours. They're more of a spiritual body. But they have some sort of body, and I suppose maybe come some kind of bones, as we see the angels that go to Sodom. But he's not talking about holy angels. He's talking about deceiving spirits. A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy, and... And while they yet believed not for joy, and wondered, and he said unto them, Have ye here have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a boiled fish and an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. This is also important why demons can't have material bodies, at least not yet. Maybe in Revelation nine God gives them a sort of hideous one <laughs> but not now. Because what if an e- an evil, deceiving spirit could materialize and look like Jesus. What would, wouldn't that call into question the resurrection? As Jesus points out here, Behold my hands and my feet, that, I might, that it is I myself handled me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. He's saying it's not an evil spirit because an evil spirit can't fake my resurrection. I'm real, I'm here. And then finally, we'll do some quick final objections of some other verses. Uh, as quick as I can, I would like to deal with a few common objections to the human view of the sons of God in Genesis 6. These objections primarily rely on Jude cha- uh, chapter, Jude verse 6. There's only one chapter. <laughs> if you go to Jude verse 6. I'm actually going to start at verse 4, but verse 6 is... Uh, primary one. Jude, verse 6. I'll begin reading at verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and 
Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that, not, that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day, of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the, defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Is Jude comparing the sins of the angels in verse 6 to the sins of Sodom in verse 7? That's what the angelic advocates for Genesis 6 would say. He's saying, they would point to verse 7 and say, look, it says, even as Sodom. What's even as Sodom? And they'll say, the angels in verse 6. The angels kept not their first estate, and they left their own habitation. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and in like manner as they, gave themselves over to fornication. That's not what Jude is saying. And this is a point, unlike number 13, where I would say, okay, maybe there's some room for interpretation. I would say there is no room for interpretation here. He's not talking about the angels in verse 7. Let's do some basic hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics is simply the science and art of interpreting scripture. It's your method of interpretation. We need to keep in mind the whole context of what Jude's topic of writing is. What's his topic? False teachers who came in unawares and turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. That is the whole point of Jude. That's why he's writing. What is he comparing? What thing is being compared to Sodom? The false teachers are being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, not the angels. He takes the false teachers and he shows how these three groups in the Old Testament uh, were judged by God for very similar kinds of sin. And we know this for a fact. And again, this is no, there's no room for interpretation here. It's not angels. He says um, in verse 8, Likewise also these filthy dreamers... Who's that? Is it the angels? No. He's talking about the false teachers. These filthy dreamers do what? Likewise, they defile the flesh, like Sodom. These false teachers, they despise dominion, like the angels. These false teachers, they speak of evil, of dignities, like Israel. That's what he's doing. He's comparing the false teachers, which he just talked about, to these three separate groups. He's not, the point of, his pa of this passage, he's not writing to talk about angels. That's not the point of his book. His point is also not to compare angels with Sodom. His point is to compare the false teachers with Sodom and show how the Israelites, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah are like these false teachers and they, in like manner, will be judged. So what about Second Peter? That's another one that's brought up. Second Peter, you can turn there. I'll just read it if you want. Second Peter chapter 2. It's basically the same example. Uh, same points, same objection. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destructions. And let's stop there. What are they doing? They are bringing in damnable heresies and denying the Lord 
and bringing swift destruction upon him upon themselves. And then he gives examples of this. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And though covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, they're going to extort you for money under the guise of Christianity. Can't imagine who would do that. <laughs> uh, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And here's where the part comes in. Verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned themselves with an overthrow, making themselves an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Peter here is not connecting the sins of the angels with the days of Noah here. He's just pointing out there will be false prophets to come, and just as all the other people, all the other groups that came before you were punished by God, God in like manner will punish these false prophets. The angel's sin here and Noah's, uh, the sin in the days of Noah are separate judgments. So, they're not angels in Genesis chapter 6. So who are they? Who are these sons of God in Genesis chapter 6? I'll go ahead and tell you to turn to actually Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to find out their identities, or at least what I think is their identities. Uh, Let me also first answer the the question, are they all Sethites, while you're turning to Genesis chapter 4. Some say, the sons of God, they were all Sethites. I don't necessarily hold to that, uh, because we know for a fact not all the Sethites were godly. Uh, They were a significant portion of the population at that time, and they were not on the ark. They all died in the flood. We also know Noah, who was a Sethite, had brothers and sisters. Lamech, his father, had other sons and daughters. Where were they on the ark? They weren't there. And surely Noah, being a preacher of righteousness, as we read, don't you think he would have gone to his family, begged them to get on the ark with him? The only reason why Lemek probably didn't is because he died before the flood. But Genesis, um, Noah's brothers and sisters did not go on the ark because they did not heed his preaching. Genesis chapter 5 is not dealing with every single person born to Seth and all of his descendants. It's talking about his seed line. That's what Genesis 5 is about. So who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? Well, I think they're actually found in Genesis 4. Verse 25 through 26. I think there are strong implications that Seth's line and Cain's line were different, uh, at least for a while. Cain was a murderer, and he and his family were expelled to the land of Nod. But Adam and Seth and all their children remained in Eden. And we read in Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, who came slew. And Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. These men who called upon the name of the Lord, could they not rightfully be called the sons of God? As we just read, as we read before in Romans 8, For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. 
Why? Because God is taking out their stony heart and he's giving them a new heart with new desires to worship him. At the time of Enos, the son of Seth, of the promised seed, God apparently was sending basically a sort of revival to these people. He was saving fallen man. No man can call upon the name of the Lord unless the Spirit is already working in him and making him a child of God. So in the days of Enoch, God was recreating these fallen men with new hearts, giving them faith in God's promises that he would send a Savior to crush the head of the serpent. And that was their salvation, their faith in God's promises. And so here is what I think Moses is communicating in Genesis chapter 6. How did we get... How on earth did we get from basically a revival of the people getting saved, calling on the name of the Lord, declaring his promises, having people like Enoch who walked so closely with God that God took him straight to heaven without experiencing death? How did we go from there down to, and God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually? Didn't God just save a bunch of men? Didn't he just move and have his spirit move and have people call on the name of the Lord? Where'd they all go? Prior to the flood, there was no law saying godly men couldn't marry the ungodly. But what happened in the days of Noah, I think, is precisely why we have laws like that today. The Jews were not permitted to marry people who were not Jews. And we Christians are commanded not to marry people who are not Christians. And the objection comes, but why would godly men marry ungodly wives? Moses tells us, the, son, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wise of all which they chose. The men who had been given a new godly nature married women who still had Adam's old nature. This also explains why it's all male on one side and all female on the other, or at least that's an objection. Why is it all male on one side and all female on the other. I think that's because, as with Genesis chapter 5, we're not, sorry ladies, we're not really concerned about you. We're concerned about the seed line. We're talking, we're talking about where is the promised seed going to come from. And so it's concerning the men. People have a hard time reconciling how godly men prior to the flood could take ungodly wives. But is it, is it really that hard to imagine? Just because you're saved doesn't necessarily mean you aren't foolish. We can also look at people today and people in the Bible. We can look how the Israelites were always marrying foreign women and causing all sorts of idolatry and troubles. We can also look at Solomon, the poster child of this evil. Just as many have a hard time, many people have a hard time understanding why did these antediluvian men marry these ungodly wives. They also have a hard time reconciling if God, if Solomon is considered the wisest man who ever lived, if he's so wise, why did he marry all these women? Why did he cause so much damage to his family and to Israel? And yet the Bible describes Solomon is considered the wisest man who ever lived, and his wisdom was gifted to him by God. Yet Solomon disobeyed two commandments when he married his wives, for primarily for political diplomacy. diplomacy. The Mosaic Law said that Israelites are not to marry foreign women. And it also said that kings of Israel were forbidden from taking multiple wives. Yet Solomon, and also David, did just that. What was the result? Solomon committed idolatry, because his wives were coming from foreign nations who worshipped foreign gods. 
This also caused the people to commit idolatry. Their wives built temples and made sacrifices, and uh, idolatry started spreading throughout Israel. Further, his polygamy also resulted in the dividing of the kingdom. Um, the northern ten tribes were given, uh, were taken by King Jeroboam, while the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, remained under Solomon, Solomon's son, King Rehoboam. And so we can see, we can also see the effects of what happens when the family gets destroyed. What happens when parents are no longer teaching their kids godly doctrines? We can also see that with our own country. America has probably the richest theological heritage of any nation. We have the Puritans, and I would favor also the American Baptist. Rich theology, they had great piety, they had great spiritual counsel, and look where we are now. The sons of God, those men that God saved and that God gave new natures, they were still sinners and they still made foolish choices, marrying ungodly women. And these ungodly women, maybe they, maybe they came from Cain's line, maybe some of them came from Seth's line. I don't have enough evidence to say that these ungodly women were exclusively Canaanite women. Some of them could have been ungodly Sethite women. Over time, I would say most of their children, from Genesis chapter 4, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And over time, their children followed the world around them. And more and more, the godly men in the world dwindled until we get to Genesis 6, where the world is full of violence and only Noah and his family went on the ark. It's not too different from us. I already went over America and how we had a great founding, um, thriving with Christianity, and now... Barely anyone's a Christian. And if they say they're a Christian, they're false Christians. Godly men, even if they were saved, they allowed the postmodern worldview to be taught in their homes and in their schools. They allowed Marx and Darwin into the classroom and into their homes. And dads, even though some of them, again, may have been saved, neglected their duty to raise their children and lead their homes. I'm really running out of time here, and I apologize for that. So <laughs> we'll just wrap up with that. I think the, it's my position that the sons of God were men. They were probably the men of Genesis 4, and Moses is explaining to us how did we get from these godly men calling on the name of the Lord down to Genesis chapter 6, where everyone is evil. Where did everyone go? Why did this happen? All right, uh, let's pray and close. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.